Welcome to the Portland Christian Center Podcast. This is the audio version of our live Sunday morning gathering. To view our live Sunday morning gathering, go to pcctoday.com. I want to welcome our guest today. He's no stranger to Portland Christian Center. He's a missionary to South Africa. We get to hear some amazing things. But I am so honored and excited to have you and your son, um, Jackson, I almost called him Justin, Action Jackson, who's six foot five, going on six foot seven here really quickly at 16 years old. What in the world? But I want us to stand. Would you give a big welcome to Pastor Joel Slater as he comes this morning? Thank you. Wow. Wow. I'll say it one more time. I think it's, wow. Um, Yeah, about five years ago, I stood on the stage and said, give me a minute. Give me a minute. Just take it all in. Ah, I just can't believe it's good to be home. It's good to see this place. It's good to see the condition in which it's in. I just want to take a moment. Uh, I grew up here. I grew up here, physically and spiritually. And I just want to say to all of you that just joined the church as members, this is a special place. These are special people. I want to say this to Pastor Nain Mael, and I want to speak to your boys. I remember, because my kids growing up here, this is a good place to grow up. Your kids are in good hands. So thanks for being here. Thanks for taking care of this church. You, Portland Christian Center, are loved by God. You know that. But sometimes God just kind of does something to kind of show you. And he knows how to give good gifts to his children. And he has given you good gifts. He's given you good leaders who love God, who put God first, who want to see you discover all that God has for you. So I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled. And for all of you who are new, maybe this is your first time, give it a chance. Give it a chance. Get involved. Don't be a stranger. When I came back as a teenager, I was a broken teenager, been in a lot of churches, a lot of religion. But we had come back after many years. My dad had finally been transferred, and we came back to this church. And I sat back in that section right there. Maybe that section, and it's gone now because you've done a few things. <laughs> so I've, it's, I'm a little thrown off. And I, I believe it was, I was sitting right back there and I was a broken teenager and I said, God, there's gotta be more. There's gotta be more. And a, and a little evangelist, little Welsh evangelist, some of you know, yeah. And this guy was going off and I just thought he was gonna have a heart attack or a stroke or like, I was just waiting for this vein to pop. I mean, something's gonna go on. But he spoke to, you know, he spoke to someone or anyone and said, if you need more of God, You need to come to the front. And that was not my background. That was not my tradition. And that was not my personality. And yet, in one moment I was back there, and the next moment I believe I was about right here. And God met me. And God filled me. And God changed the course of my life. Little did I know that that somehow I would end up clear across the world in Durban, South Africa. 
But if you give God a chance, he'll do something in your life. So can I just say, give him a chance. No perfect people, but give God a chance and see what he can do. Amen? Amen. And so thank you so much for letting me come. And Pastor, again, thanks for this opportunity. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Joel Slater. And along with my wife, Amy, and our four children, Sydney, Brooklyn, Jackson, and Jasper, we are the Slater Six. And five years ago, you launched us to the mission field of Africa. First to the nation of Malawi. And so from my brothers and sisters and your brothers and sisters in Chichea, we say, Mulibwanji. And then transferring three years ago to South Africa for multiple reasons. We now reside in the city of Durban on the East Coast. And apart from your, from your friends, the Zulu people, we say, Sawabona. And to everyone, Sani Banani. So we greet you individually. and We greet you as, as, a, as a corporate group. And then the Afrikaans, it's Gue More. And I'm still working on that one. So they have like, not, you know, 18 languages. So I appreciate your grace and favor. But uh, we have been in South Africa and working with the Healthy Pastor, Healthy Church Initiative, helping pastors grow healthy themselves, physically, emotionally, relationally, spiritually, because you can't have a healthy church without a healthy pastor. And so we believe as the pastor goes, so goes the church. So we want our pastors to be healthy in every single way and then lead churches that are healthy and not be infected by all the deception and all the the grow fast schemes. We want them to grow God's way. And so we are working on that. And then our our point of passion is our discipleship pathway. And I'll talk a little bit about discipleship here in a moment. But as I stand here today, I recognize that so much has changed. We're experiencing reverse culture shock coming back to the United States. There's someone asked us, where are you homesick for? And I'm saying, to be honest, I'm a homesick for Africa. It's just amazing how it's kind of shifted and we know that that's where our ministry. And as I, as I look around and I see so many faces, I see faces that I know, we've, we've ministered together, you knew I was growing, we, we grew up together, went to Africa with some of us. Bob, Benji, you remember me clinging to your shirt tails going to Africa the first time? Don't you leave me. <laughs> Pastor, I told the same thing to Pastor Ray Noah and he left me. <laughs> Painful. But I've ministered with you, grown up with many of you. It's great to see young people that I saw in the youth ministry and now you're becoming members. So that's exciting. There are so many good things. Many things have changed for the better. But there are also, if you look in our world and as we prepared to come back to America, we began to look at you know, society and culture and, and we saw, man, there's some things that seem to have changed for the worse. And I imagine, I imagine a question that you have asked since the pandemic. We, we, we had just landed in, in Malawi when the pandemic began. We'd only been there four to six months. And we asked God, why? God, why would you bring us to Africa right now? They told us, your support's gonna dry up. You're, you, you better get ready, you better buckle in. Our entire team left for different reasons. They, we were the last ones to arrive and, they, and we were the last ones to stay. And we're asking, God, why? Why would you do this? Why would you bring us all the way here? And then why would it seemingly you would abandon us? And why would our team, we felt that way for a moment. They didn't, but it felt that way. And we just began to ask all the questions. God, why is this happening? And, and maybe you've asked that question too. You, you, had, you had things happen to you. I think about the young people that you probably asked the question, why, was, why, was it, why, did, why did I miss my graduation? That only comes around once a year. Why do I, why did I, why was, why was it the year that I graduated that I missed that? Or, or maybe it was even, even worse than that. You, you had a loved one that, that died or your, your business imploded or, or, or a relationship went south or, you know, and you can think of any kind of relationship and you ask that question, why? Why? Why me? Why us? Why now? Why this? Why? Why? That's a powerful question, isn't it? 
If the question is not answered, it can deflate us, can't it? When we don't get an answer to our why, it can de- deflect us from our, from our course of, of life. And it can even defeat us if we don't get an answer to the question why. Why is a powerful question when it's not answered, but it's also a powerful question when it is answered. I came across this quote, Simon Sinek said, regardless of what we do in our lives, and we do a lot of things. For 19 years, I was a pastor. And then for the last five years, I've been a missionary. So you don't always do the same thing. But no matter what we do in our lives, our why, our driving purpose, our cause, our belief never changes. Can I ask you the question? What's your why? What drives you? You're gonna do a lot of things. You may not always be this or that, but why do you do what you do? And there may be no more transformative place to find the power of that question, why, than in the book of Romans. And so you've been in this series in the book of Romans and we're gonna continue to look at that. But if you haven't been here, I encourage you. I went on the website and you've got some fabulous, fabulous messages. And I would encourage you, if you're here for the first time and you're just playing catch up, go back to the website, go find the messages and start from the beginning and, and Follow this journey through the book of Romans. Multiple speakers, Pastor, Pastor Nate, Pastor Mael, Pastor, Pastor Jason, right? Sorry, so many names. And I want to say them in Afrikaans too. Great messages. And it's just a great building block of, 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 of transformative messages. But Romans, the book of Romans, brings answers to some of the most trans- powerful and transformational and consequential questions in existence. Romans helps you find the answer to the question, why is there evil in the world? Why is there suffering in the world? Why did Jesus come to earth? Why why does God judge people? How could a loving God seemingly judge people? Romans talks about that. Why did Jesus have to die? What was the point of that? That seems pretty violent. That seems pretty unnecessary. Why did Jesus have to die? And why do we have to trust Jesus to be saved? What's the point of that? Don't all religions lead to heaven? Aren't all religions fundamentally the same? Isn't that? But what but Romans talks about, why did Jesus, why do we have to trust Jesus to be saved? And many, many more questions. What is your why? What is your why? And here's why it's so important that you find the answer to that question. Because long before influencers like Simon Sinek made a comment about finding your why, way before he hit the, hit the ground and became an influencer, Finding the answer to this question was the catalyst for the Apostle Paul's very incredible life and efforts. When he discovered his why, it changed the world. Do you remember? Sometimes familiarity breeds contempt. What did Paul look like at one point? He was zealous. He was intense. He was focused. He was a type A personality. Get her done. And yet his goal was to eradicate these foolish followers of Jesus. He knew the law. He knew what to believe. He knew what was right. And I'm going to wipe out anyone and everyone that doesn't believe the way I see to believe. And yet something fundamentally transformed his life. It wasn't a new philosophy. It wasn't a new concept. It wasn't even a new way of saying things. He met Jesus. He met the living Jesus. On the road to Damascus, he came face to face with the living, living Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. And he, and, he, and he said, he didn't even recognize him in his glory. He goes, who are you? And he goes, I'm Jesus of Nazareth. And on that road, that Damascus road, it changed the course of his life. 
And I want you to remember what he said in the first chapter of Romans. When I speak on something, I like to get a running start out of it and make sure that we connect the dots. I won't preach the whole book of Romans again. But I want you to remember this. It's been a few weeks, hasn't it? He said, Paul said, I am obligated both to the Greeks and non-Greeks, anyone and everyone, both to the wise and the foolish. And I'm so glad for that because I don't fit in the first category. I'm more in the second. He says, but verse 15, that is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is, it is the power of God. The gospel is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone that believes. First to the Jew, they got it first. They got first access. They got first right of refusal. But then to the Greeks, it wasn't just to one person. It's not to a select group. It's not, for, it's not secret wisdom. It's not a secret that you get that only the select get to show. First to the Jews, then to the Greeks, to the Gentile. For in the gospel, it's in the gospel that the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first and to last, just as it's written, the righteous will live by your works. The righteous will live by your words. The righteous will live by faith. That clearly, Paul found his why. He found his why. He lived for it and he died for it. He went, he went, to, the, he went to his death believing in it. I wasn't, he wasn't ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God. It's the power of God in him. It's the power of God through him. He lived for it. He died for it. What is your why? Have you found that? Are you living for it? Are you willing to die for it? Now, as we continue, as we continue, and I have the privilege of continuing this series in the book of Romans, we're at chapter 11. We're at chapter 11, and true to form, chapter 11 is full of material that prompts me to ask a big fat why. Honestly, I didn't really appreciate it. Honestly, it's like, you get to preach. I got an email from Pastor Rick, and he said, you get to preach from chapter 11. And I looked at it and went, oh, why? Why? I mean, don't get me wrong. It's God's word, but I, why? Why? I mean, like, couldn't I have been a week later and Pastor Mael got, you know, the missionary message? How beautiful are the feet of those? I'm like, that's the one. That's the one I could do, but why? See, it's full of whys. I ask questions like, why is this chapter here? Why is Paul talking about the fate of the Jews? He's talking to Romans. This doesn't make any sense. Why are you talking to Romans about the Jews? Why is it advantageous for Paul to focus on Gentiles instead of the Jews? He said it's actually good to focus on the Gentiles rather than Jews. I don't, why, why, why? And I have to admit, I almost gave up. I'm gonna be all transparent. I almost gave up. I said, nah, okay, I'll just, I'll just share with you about Africa. I could talk to you about that. But I, as I, I couldn't figure out what to say. I couldn't figure out what to do. And that's a pastor talking. That's a preacher talking. So I'm wrong, I didn't have any words. But then I began to ask why. That question is powerful because it began to unlock. And I finally saw something in this passage. It's something I admit that I, I've allowed to become so familiar. And maybe you're with me. You grew up in church. You've heard this time and time again. And so maybe this has become a little bit too familiar. And now it's kind of lost its, 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 its shine on it. But I want to bring us back to the beginning because it's something so familiar. But it, we ought not to lose our awe and wonder at it. And it's this. If you don't remember anything else from this message, remember this. When it comes to salvation... When it comes to understanding salvation, the whole point of Romans is to understand the power of salvation. When it comes to salvation, sometimes seeing is believing. 
You see, we live in a world, and that was part of, that was part of as a missionary, we're learned to learn language and culture. We're supposed to focus on language and culture. What is the language, and how do we communicate it, and then the culture that is in it, and we find how Christianity, Christianity supersedes culture, okay? So we don't say that Christianity changes, you know, transforms culture, but Christianity is not a culture in and of itself. So we're not here to bring Western Christianity to Africa, okay? It transcends. Christianity was in Africa before it came, came to the West. So we're not here to bring a new culture. But what we see is that, but what, what we see is that in this culture, we see the rise of the nuns. We see a group of young people, and I, and I saw Barna make a comment that says, more and more young people are leaving faith because, because they're seeing that it's irrelevant. Christianity, they, they think it's irrelevant, they think it's hypocritical, and they think that it's morally bankrupt. They're just seeing it. That's what they see. When they see the Christian church, that's what they see. Is, is that true? Not necessarily, but that's what they see. And so Romans is telling us, especially in this chapter, that when it comes to understanding what real salvation is, it's not just joining a church. It's not just identifying with a group. It's not just carrying a label or wearing the t-shirt. But when it comes to under, under salvation, they've got to see it to believe it. Someone once said in this younger generation, because they're so attached to, to, to social media, they, they I, I don't mean this disparagingly, young people, but again, I, I, I'm beginning to understand because I've got several of them myself. But, but what I've been told is that you learn with your eyes and you think with your feelings. And you've been told to believe in something your whole life. And yet you see the disparity. You see, they, they say they believe something, but you don't see any difference in it. And at the end of the day, Paul is saying, I want you to understand what real salvation it is. And to you Romans, to you Gentiles, you think maybe these people have got to see it, to believe it. Long before we had chapters and verses and that we compiled into, into the book that we call the Bible, there was a version of our faith that captured the attention of the world because of what it did and how it behaved, especially in its radical compassion and its generosity. Before we had a Bible, it says the Bible says they lived it out and people were in awe and wonder at what is, what is different? Why do they act this way? Why do they do what they do? It changed the world by its, its demonstration, its behavior, and not just by what it simply said it believed. And so you may ask, why do I begin this way? Well, I'm so glad you asked. So let's find out. Look at Romans chapter 11, verse one. And I just have a few verses. We're not gonna go through the whole chapter. But it says in verse one, I asked then, did God reject his people? By no means. That is a really weird way to start a chapter. Why does it seem, so we ask the question, why does it seem like God has abandoned those who carry the title of chosen people? I mean, if you grew up in Sunday school, you heard that the, the Israelites, the Jews were the chosen people. That seems like a very special category. That seems like they get first dibs and they were, but you have to go all the way back to the beginning. They weren't chosen at the exclusion of everyone else. But God said to Abraham, he said, you have been blessed so that you may be a blessing. There's a reason why you've been chosen. It's not for the exclusivity and to, 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 to hoard all the benefits, but you have been blessed. You have been chosen so that in you, I might give an example to everyone else. You have been blessed so that you may be a blessing. And it's painful to Paul. Paul is saying, these are my people. I was an Israelite, I was a Benjamite. I, I grew up in this and my own people are missing out. We had first dibs and we, we, and we missed out. And, is it, and is it, with everything that's happened and, and being the, the, the way the Jews have been scattered throughout the, the, the world and, and it seems like God has abandoned them and why God, why would you do that? Has God abandoned them? It's a question that Paul just can't bear. And he's got to find an answer because he, he identifies with these people. 
And he addressed this issue back in chapter 10. He said in chapter 10, verses one through four, he said, brothers and sisters, my heart's desire to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. That I, I want them to be saved for I can testify about them that they are zealous for God. They're not lackadaisical. They're not, they're ap not apathetic. They are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. We can see people that are intense about maybe their cultural Christianity. And we, they, they, people are intense about what Christianity ought to look like. You dress a certain way, you talk a certain way, you do certain things. There's zeal there. You're sincere. But can I say, you can be sincere, but then be sincerely wrong. That you can be like mean, you have all the best intentions. And yet people are looking at going, that don't look like Jesus. I live in Durban, South Africa. I live in the province of KwaZulu-Natal. And, and many, many years ago, I think it was about over a hundred years ago, a man, a very influential man named Gandhi, Mohatma Gandhi lived in South Africa. He actually lived there for like 20 some years. I, I live about five, five, eight mile, five to eight miles. They call, they call them kilometers, so I could never tell, uh, from my house. And Gandhi in South Africa, Again, this, was a, this is a multicultural, multi-religion uh, you know, nation. So it's not predominantly Hindu. It's not predominantly Muslim. There are those and everything, but many Christians as well. And Gandhi was in Af South Africa for almost 20 years. And that was an amazing time. Imagine what would happen if Gandhi had, had found Christ, if Gandhi had found salvation. This man's name and his influence and his, his approach to, to the atrocities that happened in, in India, his leadership, his way of doing things could have been transformative in a completely amazing way. And yet there in South Africa, Gandhi was approached and he, and he said, well, why don't you follow Jesus? And he goes, well, I like Jesus. I don't like his followers. They don't look anything like Jesus. When it comes to understanding salvation, sometimes seeing is believing. And so Paul, Paul is saying that these people are zealous, but it's not based on knowledge. And since they don't know the righteousness of God, they don't know what God offers. They don't know what they have access in God. And they sought to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ, Jesus Christ is the culmination of the law. In other words, all these do's and don'ts. He is the, he is the culmination of it. He is the fulfillment of it. You, we were given, earlier on in Romans, it says we were given the law not to save us, but just to show us that we're failures, as if I need any convincing. And yet Jesus fulfilled the law for us. Jesus satisfied the requirements of righteousness for us. And then he turned around, and he says, I want to give it to you. You're going to find it in me. You're going to have this. You're going to attain this, not by your own effort, because you will st stand and fall, stand and fall, but you can find your salvation. You can find righteousness by adopting not, not a church's identity, not a group's identity, but Christ's identity. It's a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. It has never changed. The requirements and the expectations have never changed from first to last. That just as it is written, the righteous will live by what? Faith. Faith, it's not about you. It's not about what you can do. It's not what you have done or will you do. It's what Jesus has done and he's offering it to you. Isn't that amazing? So, but he talks about these people. He talks about leaving behind the Jews. And again, I just didn't understand why. I liked what I saw in chapter 10, but now he's coming back to these Jews in chapter 11. Why? So to answer this why, Paul falls back on an idea that runs through all the Old Testament. He's not coming up with new ideas. He's coming up with, he's being reminded of an old idea. And he talks about this later on in chapter 11 about Elijah. I won't read that, that portion. You can read it later, but he remembers a time that Elijah faced 
maybe a lot like our time. You know, circumstances are different, but the feelings and the situation seem the same. Elijah was in despair. He had come to the conclusion that he alone was only true to God. How many of you can say in your, in your context, maybe in your school or maybe in your, in your family or in some place, it feels like you're the only one that is, is, that, that is following Jesus, that everyone else is either giving up or gave up or doesn't want to have anything to do. And you're the only one that is trying to follow Jesus or trying to be true to God. Elijah felt that way, but God told him, God straightened him out. He said that, in fact, Elijah, you may think you're the only one. You may think you're the only one trying this. You may think you're the only one. You know, I know young people today struggle with FOMO, the fear of missing out, that if I follow Jesus, then I won't enjoy the things that all my friends are enjoying, right? And, it's, and it's, so, so if I follow Jesus and I, and I do this, this, follow this Jesus life, then I'm gonna miss out on a lot. Can I tell you, I tell my kids all the time, it says when following Jesus, following Jesus helps you make better decisions so that you live with fewer regrets. I don't want my kids to look back and say, I wish I hadn't done that. I, w- I wanted them to say, oh my, oh my goodness, I'm so glad that I didn't do that. Because the decisions you make today determine the number and the quality of the decisions you make later on. And so at the end of the day, following Jesus, you'll never regret it. But Elijah thinks that he's the only one that's followed and, 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 and God speaks to him. He course corrects him and says, Elijah, I know that's how you feel, but at the end of the day, honestly, that's not true. There are actually 7,000 other people who have not bowed their knee to Baal. There's, you are not alone, Elijah. There is a remnant. There's always a remnant because Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Last time I checked, he's still building his church. The church is being built all over. Now it may seem, yeah, it may seem that the church is in decline in the West, but I can, can, I, can I tell you? It kind of feels the same way. It's like, you know, we got the West, we rose up and we sent missionaries and it seemed like the church was going well, but now we feel in decline. But if you look to the East, if you look to the South, in the global South, the church is on the rise. We can see that the church all over Africa is is spreading like wildfire. And the Summers of God World's Missions vision is a healthy church within walking distance of every African. And it's happening, it's not a pipe dream. I know other organizations like Petros are, are making that happen in cooperation. We're not in competition, we're in collaboration. But I can tell you all over, we have missionaries in Brazil and, 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 and the Holy Spirit is moving all over South America. And we see, we see, I can't say it online, but there are places in the most unlikely places where the fastest underground church is growing because the gospel cannot be stopped. And so don't think that you're the only one. Don't think that you're the last, the last holdout. God is moving. Then there's still thousands of others. There is still a remnant of people who have not bowed their knee and are still faithful to God. This isn't just Elijah's idea. Down all the way through the Bible, we see Amos, the, the prophet, thought of God sifting men as corn in a sieve until only the good are left. Micah had a vision of God gathering the remnant of Israel. Zephaniah had the same idea. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and above all, Isaiah had this idea that no matter how dark it seems, there is a remnant. Are you part of it? Are you part of it? Because there's a tremendous truth that is drilled into this. As one great scholar put it, no church or nation is saved en masse. Just because you're in a church doesn't mean you're saved. And then I will challenge you, this is where, when it comes to understanding salvation, seeing is believing. Just sitting in these pews is not gonna convince someone who's looking for salvation that, that, that you're, you're genuine. 
They're looking at your life. They're looking at your example. They're looking at your testimony. They're looking at, you say you believe what we say we believe. You say what we, what we sing and everything, but do you actually live it? Do you actually live it? Because I grew up in this church, but I had to come face to face with the living God. I, had, I knew all the Bible verses. I knew the Bible stories. I could win a Bible, you know, uh, you still have Bible quiz? Yeah. So you can win a Bible quiz and everything. At the end of the day, that is not the demarcation, the delineation, the determination of whether you are saved. No one is saved in mass. Some people ask, why are you in South Africa? We're a Christian nation. Have you looked at it lately? Today in Cape Town, today in Johannesburg, you look at the news and everything. There are riots. There is violence rising. There, is, there are people, when we go out some places, they, they hear our accent and they go, why are you here? Why are you here? And we say, because we love you. Because we love you and, and we want to share Jesus with you. They say, but I, and we, I even told one person as we were getting ready to leave, I said, well, I have to close this account because we're going back to America. And they said, oh, you're blessed. Oh, I wish I could go with you. The idea, why are you here? Why are you here? It's because I want to share Jesus. And they say, well, this is a Christian nation. Again, no nation is saved in mass. No, no church is saved in mass. And maybe you're asking the question, why are you even talking about this? Well, I'll give you three reasons real quickly. One, salvation is not achieved by human efforts or based on your historical background. There are people that are, that are chronologically very old, but you're very, very young in your faith. And so at the end of the day, your salvation is not based, well, I grew up in this church. I've been a Christian all my life. Really? Maybe you are. I'm not here. To, you need to seek that to God. But salvation is not achieved by human efforts or your historical background. Salvation is not a given. Just being born in the church doesn't make you a Christian. Just growing up here doesn't make you a Christian. And number three, answering why do you think you are a Christ follower suddenly becomes much more important. How would you answer that question? If you came face to face with someone today and they asked, why are you a Christian? How would you answer? Why is it important to answer that question? Because the world needs a modern day remnant. The world needs a group of people that will not capitulate to the pressures of the culture, but they will live out their lives in such a way that the answer to that question why would they do that would be something that goes along the lines of, well, look at what God is doing in them. Look what God is doing through them. I want that. I want that. I want that. And having lived for four years overseas, it's remarkable. It's remarkable again to kind of become a kind of a, you know, to begin to study American culture from, from the outside and American church culture. As we watch COVID land and work both in South Africa and America, it was interesting. It seemed like COVID yanked the veneer off the culture. I'm not saying it wasn't there before. I'm just saying just suddenly we just got really real, okay? We couldn't handle it anymore. We just got real. And we asked a lot of question, why questions during that defining time. I'm sure maybe you asked the question, why would God allow this? Why is this happening? Why isn't the church closing? Why is the church closing? I mean, why, why, is America, why does it seem like America is turning its back on God? Or maybe why does it seem like God is turning his back on us? Or maybe you answered a, a different question. And I told you that Romans gives us the answer to a lot of whys. And I think that Romans has been telling us why from the beginning. Because just like the, the, that group of Jewish people that ask, why does it seem like God has abandoned us? Maybe we feel like God has abandoned us in this day. But I would say that the idea of a chosen people, the idea of a Christian by default, can't hold water for this very reason. And Romans tells us that the relationship with God is an individual relationship. You have to have a relationship with God. 
Your pastor can't have a relationship with God for you. Pastor, just pray for me. Just pray for me, pastor. In South Africa, the pressure on the pastor is so great to be the man of God, to speak for God, to have that prophetic word. Well, according to my Bible, the Holy Spirit comes on all flesh. My name is Joel. I think I read it in a book somewhere that in those last days, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. It doesn't matter your age, the old and the young. My daughter grew up in this church and she was timid about the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. But then one night we were in Malawi and she began to pray. And I said, after she prayed, all I could say was, honey, don't you ever doubt that you have been anointed by the Holy Spirit? Because that prayer came right from the throne of God. Young and old, male and female, rich and poor, everyone has access to the Holy Spirit. And so at the end of the day, at the end of the day, your relationship with God is a, is a personal one. So you don't, it's great to have the pastor pray for you, but you have access to the throne of God. You can storm heaven. You can make a request. My little boy Jasper, seven years old, you, maybe you heard a little bit about him or anything, but one thing I've let this little boy teach me is, that, uh, is, is about the relationship between a child and our heavenly father. Every day we, after school, there's a little snack bar. We call it the tax shop. I don't know why, but they call it that. And every day, Jasper, as we walk to our car, dad says, dad, can I get something at the tax shop? And my first thought is, what is your mother gonna say? But it reveals two things. One is that my son knows I have complete ability to make that request available. I can meet that need, that need. But more importantly is that he wants to. He knows I want to. He knows that I dearly want to just absolutely. And I love that Jasper models that, well, we should, we should be able to, I should have a relationship with God where I come boldly before the throne of grace, that I can make all my requests known. It doesn't mean that every answer, sometimes I have to say, no, Jasper, it's not the best for you. We've got to do something else. But at the end of the day, I know that, that, that Jasper has complete confidence in me. And is your relationship with your heavenly father such that you have complete confidence in him? The relationship with God is, is an individual relationship. Any man, any woman can give his or her own heart and surrender his life to God today. And maybe today, if you're here online or in this place, you came in and wondered if you could, I'm saying you can. God does not call women and men in crowds. Rather, he has what William Barclay called his own secret stairway into every heart. Why would you follow Jesus? People are not saved because they're a, they're a member of a nation or a family or because they grew up in the church. People are saved because they make a personal decision to confess with their mouth and believe in their hearts. It's not now, nor has it ever been, a whole nation who gets lumped together as the chosen people. So why is Paul sharing this? Because from a human perspective, it appears that both the Jews and modern Christians in the Western world, it appears from a human perspective that they've lost their chance to experience the benefits of being special, being select. But it's actually because Paul is assuring us that even when you don't get an answer to your why, even when it seems like things aren't working out the way you think, God has a plan and he's been working all along to fulfill that plan. Verse 11 says, again, I ask, did they stumble? Did they miss out so as to fall beyond recovery? Is it a lost cause? No, not at all, Paul says. Rather, because of their transgressions, because of what they did, salvation has now come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. 
Salvation has come in such a, such an, a, a transformative and, and incarnational way that now the Jews are like, oh, I want that. I want that. Paul's point out that the seemingly terrible outcome is neither terribly, neither truly terrible nor totally terminal. I want you to consider this, looking back on what we can learn from that pandemic and that defining time. As terrifying and as completely disruptive as the pandemic was to our normal way of life, it proved to be the catalyst to some amazing opportunities. What may appear as a tragedy can actually be a triumph wrapped up in a temporary time. He said in verse 13 and 14, I'm talking to you Gentiles. I'm talking to you, you're the example. Inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. Think about it. The Jews' rejection of Jesus as Messiah propelled those apostles out of the synagogues. They could have said, this, this Messiah is all ours and, we're, and it's, we're the chosen people and we get to keep it to ourselves and sit and simmer and soak and, and just enjoy the good times and let them roll. But rather than it propelled these apostles and said, if you're not gonna accept it, then I'm gonna go somewhere that they will accept it. The totally unretouched. Gentiles at that time were completely untouchable. Remember in the book of, book of Acts, God said, rise, Peter, go. Go to the Gentiles. And he goes, I can't. They're unclean. And God said, don't you ever call what God has said clean, unclean. They matter to God. And so God, God used a, 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 this rejection of the Jews to begin to share the gospel to the point that people, that these communities of Gentiles would be transformational. In our modern day, the church, up until the pandemic, churches were mainly focused on a come and see model. What can we do to get you to come? What can we offer you to come? Hey, why don't you come? And now because we, we were shut down and we were scattered, suddenly we moved from that come and see to a go and tell model. Sounds pretty biblical to me. Rather than remain in our comfort zone, rather than expecting people to step out of their comfort zone and come into our comfort zone, churches who knew their why, why do we exist? Why did God put us on this earth? Why has God sustained us? Why has God let a church last for a hundred years, even in such difficult times? Why do we exist in the first place? They kept going. I watched and I was so proud of you. You did feeding programs and you did community groups and you do outreach and you did decentralized ministry. Rather than expect people to come to you, you made investments in technology and methodology in order to connect people with where they are. People who may have never thought that your talents, your gifts, your abilities could be used for God or now being invited and we said, we need you to propel the gospel forward. I heard of one church that was dead, dead in the sense of they were limited and they were aging and they didn't know what to do and they were gonna die. And yet two eighth grade girls stepped up and said, we can help you with your streaming. And two eighth grade girls stepped up and saved that church because what we saw as a, as a tragedy, God would use for a triumph. And that church has reinvented itself. This is how the early church changed the world. It has happened before, it can happen again. Imagine a world with me, come on, just imagine a world with me where people that are skeptical about what we believe that, oh, I know what you believe. I know what Christians believe. I've heard it time before. They're skeptical about what you believe, but they are envious of how well you treat each other. And they are absolutely shocked and awed and amazed at how well you treat them. You say, I don't believe what you believe. I don't look like the way you look. I, I, don't, I'm not, I don't identify as you do. And it's like, yeah, but you're, you carry the Imago Dei. You carry the image of God. 
and I wanna show you. You may not believe what I believe, but I want you, but sometimes seeing is believing, isn't it? Sometimes when it comes to understanding what salvation is, seeing is believing. But I wanna warn you, this comes with a warning is that we can't let this, this idea that we have discovered it and we've made it and that we may be the remnant let go to our head. Because sometimes when we've learned something, we've cracked the code, maybe we've, we've found a, a methodology that is uh, successful, we can let it go to our head and we can get, it can get out of control. But when we discover our why, we must not forget what it took to get there. Simon Sinek also said, this is important to know, understand our why because our behavior is affected by our assumptions or our perceived truths. We make decisions based on what we think we know. So if we think we're special, we may expect other people to treat us as special. But Paul is warning his audience to never forget they cannot depend on their own works or their own salvation or their own righteousness. He says, don't forget this. If some of the branches have been broken off and you though a wild olive shoot have been grafted into among the others and now share in the nourishing sap of the olive root, some imagery, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. Because if you do consider this, you don't support the root. The church isn't based on you. The, the work of Christ is not based on you. The root supports you. That you draw from the root. Romans told us that we have all sinned and that puts us all on level ground. Romans told us that we're all enemies of God. Romans told us that we are all objects of wrath. So we can't take credit for finding Jesus or following Jesus. And so what Paul may be saying to us here is this, make room for others because God made room for you. Make room for others because God made room for you. And as you draw, as you just, just we see this imagery, as you are grafted in and you draw from that root, as you are drawn to Jesus and you continually connect with him, you will increasingly recognize that you didn't inquire, you didn't attain, or you didn't achieve salvation you recognize what a precious gift it is. And as you share, as Romans says, in the nourishing sap, as you draw from the root, you should inevitably produce that, the naturally expected product. You should produce fruit. I would say you should produce like fruit. You draw from the olive tree, you should produce olives. You draw from the orange tree, you should produce oranges. Jesus said in John 15, he said, I am the vine. Jesus, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me, that's conditional. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. See, apart from me, you can do nothing. And some of us, many of us, myself included, have proven that time and time again. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Does that describe your spiritual life today that you've been trying to do things on your own? and yet you're just not producing fruit and it feels like your life is drying up and withering, can I invite you to connect, reconnect with Jesus? Because if you're, you're not, you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that's thrown away and withers and such branches are picked up, thrown in the fire and burned. But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish. Not because it's just a prosperity gospel thing. That is one of the number one threats to the gospel work in Africa. Amen. Did you know that? See, they're so desperate to see something happen that they're going on the internet and they're looking at the West and they're saying, if we do what they do, we'll get what they got. And at the end of the day, it, is, it has been absolutely destructive. That is not authentic Christianity. That is not authentic Christianity. 
So it's not about you do whatever, you ask whatever you want, you get it. It's like when you connect with him, you're gonna begin to draw from him. You're gonna become more like him and you're gonna, be at, you're gonna begin to ask the things that Jesus would ask. You would ask the things that Jesus would ask. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish because it's gonna be what I wish and it will be done for you. And verse eight, this is to my father's glory that you bear much fruit, proving to be my disciples. See, you can be, say you're a disciple of Jesus, but is the fruit of your life showing it? When it comes to understanding salvation, sometimes seeing is believing. So ask yourself today, as we get ready to close here in a minute, what's the fruit of my life showing? What are people looking at? Is, is the way I live my life something that they would be envious of? When they ask, why do you go to church? Why, 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 do, you, why do you orient your life around, around this thing called Christianity? Is this something that they would say, I want that? It may seem like the world is going to hell in a handbasket. But I ask the question, why are we surprised? Why are we surprised? We knew this would happen. It may feel like you're the only one trying to live for Jesus. And it may feel like we are totally on our own and outnumbered. But that is where God does his best work. That is where God does his best work. What the world needs now, more than ever, is for you and me to learn the lesson of Romans 11. When it comes to understanding salvation, seeing is believing. And I'm making room for others because God made room for me. The world ought to see the power of the gospel in our lives, at work, in those who say they believe. They ought to see it so vividly and convincingly that they want what we have. And that's why I've become so pa passionate about authentic discipleship. I spent a lot of years at PCC banging my head against the wall. What is discipleship? How do you disciple people? Is it a class? Is it a, is it a curriculum? Is it an acquiring of knowledge? No. Is it an ever increasing list of activities? No. Is it achieving notoriety and, and infamy with a successful ministry? No, it's what Paul describes. It's attaching ourselves so closely to Jesus that we draw our very life from him and we produce evidence of that connection every single day. Being a disciple, I've learned, is being a learner of Jesus, learning to be like him. How did, he, how did he deal with people that, pe that other people said, don't talk to her, don't talk to her. Master, take care of your own needs and not hers. Master, why, you shouldn't talk to him, you shouldn't go there. Master, don't, don't give attention to children. I mean, come on, they're, 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 they're a nuisance. Don't give priority to children's ministry. There's a plug for the children's ministry. You're welcome. Learning to be like Jesus in every way and then learning to do the things that he would do learning to do the things he did. And as we pursue this in our everyday life, every day, not just at church, but every single day, the people that we engage with, just like the people in Rome, in the days of the early church and throughout the New Testament world, we'll ask a version of that why question. Why? Why do you follow Jesus? Why do you follow Jesus? Why do you invest so much time and so much effort and so much treasure and resource into his work? Why do you talk differently? Why do you live differently? Why do you love differently? Why do you forgive differently? 
Why do you give differently? And so on and so forth. And when they ask those questions, you'll be answered, be able to answer, I'm so glad you asked. They need to see it in your life. And we need to make room for those that, because God made room for us. What is your why? What is your why today? Why, do you, why are you living for Jesus? We're gonna sing a song today. And I'm gonna encourage you as we close and Pastor Nate's gonna come back to ask yourself, why? Why am I here? Why do I, why do I align myself with this? Why do I exist? Ask, just make yourself available and let the Holy Spirit speak to you. Maybe you need to do a little triage on your marriage. Why do I treat my spouse this way? Is that in line with how Jesus said to do it? Why do I treat people who look differently and, and act differently and live differently? I'm not saying we, we endorse what, what someone else does and everything, but at the end of the day, how did Jesus do it? Why? What's your why? Ask that question as we sing the song. God, what's the answer to my why? What's my why and how would you answer it? And then commit yourself to learning to be like Jesus, doing the things that Jesus did, and let anyone and everyone who is watching your life stand in awe and wonder and say, I want that. Thanks for letting me share. Thanks for going on this journey with us. Thank you, thank you for being a church that is set up for another hundred years. And my prayer is this, that you would produce another generation of disciples that go into all the world and they make disciples of all living people. Amen. Ask yourself that question why. God bless you as we sing. Thank you for listening to the Portland Christian Center Podcast. If you'd like to hear more or learn more about us, visit our website at pcctoday.com or join us online for our live stream at 1030 at live.pcctoday.com. Today.com.